I like being on floor level. And uh, I, I just want to say, those of you that are towards the back, I know we have a section that's specifically designed for people who would like distancing and wear a mask, and that's wonderful. If everyone, if you want to move forward, feel free to do that, because right now I feel like I'm speaking in a cathedral in England. It's narrow and long, and it's just not a great communicator's setting. But if you want to come up, feel free to do that. If you, if you don't want to move forward, don't. Stay where you're at. Feel free. Uh, tonight, we're going to uh, open the Scripture, and if you brought your Bible, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Last Sunday... We were looking at the entry, the triumphal entry of Christ. It's interesting how many Christians, when you think about Palm Sunday, they think it's just about palm fronds that are, that are lowered down so the donkey could walk on the palm fronds. They have no understanding of the significance of that. What does it represent? What does it mean? And they have no understanding of the triumphal entry. What exactly was that all about? So we took our time Sunday morning and we covered that today. We're going to look at the crucifixion of Christ. You know, Passover week is a, is a powerful time. The focus of Passover leads us to the greatest passion of Jesus Christ, that his work on the cross was the greatest work that was ever done on this earth for man. The whole Bible points to this moment of divine atonement. And so we're going to look at this. And we're going to do it through Matthew's gospel. We're going to stay with Matthew here. Uh, interesting how Matthew lines up with that very theme that it points us to this divine moment of atonement. Uh, the first three chapters of Matthew, I want you to just see this. I want you to see how the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew in the writing of this gospel. But the first three chapters of Matthew cover the first 30 years of the life of Christ, from infancy up to the age of 30. So three chapters cover 30 years of Jesus' life. So you're moving at a pretty fast pace, right? If you're going to cover 30 years and three years. However, the next 22 chapters cover his earthly ministry, three years. So first you start out with three chapters covering 30 years. Now you move uh, into the life of ministry, which is three years long. And it's 22 chapters covering it. You see how we're slowing down? But th get this. The final three chapters of Matthew's gospel cover the final week of his life. Three whole chapters. Two of the three focus on his crucifixion, leading up to his crucifixion. So the whole gospel of Matthew, it's as if it goes, as you move through it, it goes from fast speed to slow speed. It's like all of a sudden things just slow down as God is wanting us to focus in on what our Savior did for us by atoning us of our sins. Matthew chapter 27 is where we're at. And I'm going to just break down verses 15 through 54 tonight, okay? Now, what separates Christianity from every other religion? Well, the answer to that is fairly simple. It's called forgiveness. No other religion can possibly make a way for forgiveness of sins. No other religion on the earth. Only Christianity. Only through the death of God himself can man be reconciled back to the Father. 
And that's exactly what happened. Allah cannot forgive sins. Buddha cannot forgive sins. There is no earthly religious guru who can forgive sins. They can have you do things in order to appease them, but you'll never have forgiveness of sins. The Jew today does not understand forgiveness of sins. I've spoken to several Jews over the years, and I love having this conversation. And they'll say, so what's Christianity really about? And I'll say, it's about forgiveness of sins. And they'll go, oh, you mean like our Day of Atonement? And I'll say, no, nothing like your Day of Atonement. And I'm not being disrespectful. But in your Day of Atonement, you're simply measuring the things that you did good and the things that you did bad, and you're hoping that the scale leans towards your goodness. No, no. Forgiveness is recognizing that there is no goodness in you. And God himself provides a way out of your sin debt. And only Jesus Christ can provide that, and he does. So what did the crucifixion of Christ accomplish? What was it that it accomplished? We're going to see it tonight right here in the gospel. First of all, it accomplished pardon. If you want to write these down, you can. The first one is pardon. That's what is accomplished through the crucifixion. Look at verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people anyone prisoner whom they wanted. So at the time, remember now, at the time of Christ, the Romans occupied Judea, okay? The feast is referencing Passover feast, one of the seven Jewish feasts. And to the Jew, this is a bigger feast than what the Gentiles celebrate in Christmas and Easter combined. To a Jew, it's bigger, okay? So the Jews would gather that were living in all parts of the known world. They would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This was a huge, significant deal. In the, in the time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, we talked about it Sunday morning, there were probably in the neighborhood of 2 million Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not a big city. And so you, can you imagine 2 million people in that city? So that's what's happening. So now there's this Passover, 2 million Jews have gathered, and the the governor would customarily release a prisoner to the people to appease the people, okay? Because there was a revolution going on. They were, the Jews were, in a, in a, they were rising up against the Roman occupation. So you had these zealots who would go out and do things uh, against the Romans. They were trying to disrupt the Romans. The Romans would capture them, them and throw them in prison. And so you had these zealots who were in prison. And so the governor would take one of the zealots out and release them to the crowd to kind of settle the crowd so there wouldn't be this great riot during the Passover feast. Uh, so that's what's happening here. Verse 16, at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. He would have been one of the greatest, one of the worst zealots, an insurrectionist, okay? Verse 17, so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? So what's happened since last Sunday is Christ has now gone through a false trial, a fake trial, and he has now been arrested, taken in, and that's by the Jewish leaders and by those who wanted him captured and now Pilate can't find any fault in the man, so he's wanting to put him out there against a zealot. And he chose the worst of all zealots. So surely they're going to choose Jesus, not this guy, because this guy's bad news. 
And I think you know what happens in the story. It's like saying, okay, who do you want me to release, Hitler or Gandhi? Okay, actually, it's nothing like that. The comparison of any human beings to Jesus Christ is ridiculous. You're talking about God himself versus a sinner, one of the worst sinners, public sinners, that the people knew. So he was trying to sway the people, trying to somehow release Jesus because he didn't think Jesus was guilty. In fact, verse 19, look if you will, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So not only is Pilate feeling like Jesus should not be handed over, that he's done anything wrong, but now his wife is pressuring him. I'm telling you, don't mess with this guy. He's a righteous man. She didn't know who he was. He's not just a righteous man. He's God. But at least she saw that, you know. If you go back and look with me, please, at verse 17 again. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. It was because of envy that the religious leaders even brought Jesus before him. He could see that far into it. Verse 20, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Now, in the New King James Version, it actually says to destroy Jesus. Okay, so, so the chief priests and the elders of the city, they're asking for, for Jesus because they want to put him to death. They want to destroy him in the Greek language. Okay, so, so this is very strong wording. This is more than just we want to hurt him, we want him to suffer. This is we want to annihilate not only the person, but the memory of the man. We don't want people to even remember him. That's how much of a hatred there was towards the Son of God. In verse 21, but the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who was called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. Quite a change of song from the triumphal entry. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. It wasn't about Jesus having committed any crimes. He didn't. It was about a crowd being riled up into a riot. We ought to know something about that in the United States of America in the last 12 months. How quickly and easily people will just get behind some cause, and half of them that are probably rioting don't even know what the real issue is. And those who have an issue, it's probably off. They've got a skewed view, and they're getting angry and upset with a skewed view. Nobody seems to want to take the time to find out what both sides of the story are. That's why Jesus taught in Matthew 18 that we should go to the person and try to reconcile. And if the person won't reconcile, then bring a witness along. Bring someone with you. And if that doesn't work, then bring them before the elders or before the church. Go through a process of church discipline to come to a conclusion. And always, 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 the desire in the Bible, the intent of church discipline is reconciliation. That's the intent. When, when Paul said, 
you know, break fellowship with this man who's sleeping with his father's wife. He wasn't saying, get rid of the guy because he's worthless. He's not worth anything. Just get him out of here. No, Paul's saying, let, hand him over to the work of the enemy and let's hope and pray that he comes to his senses like the prodigal son in the pig pen and he comes back to the church repentant for his sin. Church discipline is a good thing, but the goal of church discipline is always to reconcile, to restore, if the person is willing. And that's what it comes down to. Well, they never gave Jesus a chance. And of course you say, well, that, why not? Because this could have been a different outcome. No, it would never have been a different outcome. This guy, everything happening is according to God's sovereign plan. The entire week that slows down that we see in Matthew's gospel is exactly as God the Father ordered up. There are no surprises here. The Father is behind this. And when you learn why, it ought to move your heart to surrender everything to him. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking to the believer who is saved. But every day we should rise in a surrendered heart before God. Amen? So they're crying, crucify him. They were saying, let him take Barabbas' place on the cross. Crucify him. See, had they chosen Barabbas, he would have been crucified. He would have been in the center probably with the two thieves on the outside. They were insurrectionists too. Those guys were going to die, but the middle guy was going to be the worst sinner of all. It was probably going to be Barabbas. But they didn't want Barabbas. They wanted Jesus. So Jesus goes to the center as the worst sinner. Just as the fathered, Father ordered up. That's the core of the gospel. You say, what's the core? Christ in my place, not our place. You got to take it, you got to make this personal. Christ in your place. He became sin for us. Honestly, we should be in the center, hanging on a cross for the sins we've committed, for the, 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 the sins we've inherited through Adam. That's enough right there to put us in the center of the cross. But we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the apostle Paul said, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our, on our behalf. Who's he? The Father made Christ the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? To take your place so that we might become the righteousness of God in him through Christ. Love that. See, there's no righteousness on our part. We're sinners. How can anybody here stand up against the glory and the holiness of God? Nobody here. The only one that we can 
worship is Christ who died for us. All we brought to the table was sin. All he brought to the table was innocence, purity, holiness. Yet he took on, he is Christ who went in my place to the cross as the Father ordered him. And what did the crucifixion of Christ accomplish? Number one, pardon. Number two, disgrace. This whole thing is a disgrace. Matthew verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Well, that's not really true. Pilate's as much of a sinner as the rest of us. So he did in fact put Christ on the cross. But Pilate was unsuccessful in turning the crowd away from Jesus, so he just washed his hands of the whole thing. He's basically saying, this thing is a disgrace. Verse 28, you want to see a disgrace, what it looks like? What happened to Jesus on the cross was a disgrace. It's the most shameful, it is the most painful, it is the most horrendous death that a person can experience. It's disgraceful, shameful, and dishonorable. Look at verse 28. They stripped him. A man being stripped in public is disgraceful. They are stripping down the Son of God. Fully man, fully God. And then it says, those, verse 39, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself, using his words, mocking him. Save yourself, as if he couldn't. You know good and well, if I was on that cross and I was the son of God, I can tell you right now, I would speak the words and I'd, those boys would poof, poof, poof. I deal with that mess. That's because I'm not God. He took it. He took on the disgrace of this event. It goes further. And a reed in his right hand, they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! He is the King of the Jews. If they only knew, <laughs> they spat on him, disgraceful. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Disgraceful. Matthew doesn't record it, but the other gospel does, and so does the book of Isaiah, that he was beaten. They punched him with a bag over his head. So laughing, come on, you should know where the punch is coming from. You should be able to duck and weave, and you should be able to miss the punch. And he took every single blow disgraceful. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Why? Because it's a narcotic that would dull the pain, and he didn't go to the cross to dull the pain, to ease the pain. He went there to take on every single ounce of pain. Disgraceful. 
And when they had crucified him, verse 35, verse 39, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Look, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. Wow. Disgraceful. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. So God the Father ought to be delighting in him. He said, that's his father. Why isn't the father responding to the son? Even the robbers, look at this, verse 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words, which is pretty powerful to think about. So both of the robbers next to him on the cross were also insulting, mocking, laughing. And yet, one of those that was doing that within a three-hour period changed course and said, when you enter your kingdom, why would he say that? Because now he sees him as the king. I want you to remember me. Please remember me. So all in the course of three hours, a guy who was with the crowd, caught up in the riot, and now all of a sudden he changes his course because God reached out to him. God showed him the grace that he needed to believe. The whole thing is disgraceful. Why, 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 the, why, the, why the irrational hatred for Jesus Christ? Because man loves darkness more than the light. We see that in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And so they're caught up in darkness. They don't see the truth. They're blinded from it. They're either blinded because of Satan, that he's blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, or they're blinded by the sovereignty of God because their hearts are bent against Christ. They'll never turn, so God hands them over to it. He just blinds them. God himself. But not one thief on the cross, God knew he would believe. He gave to him the grace to believe. I, I love that. So what did the crucifixion of Christ accomplish? Pardon, it accomplished disgrace. Thirdly, it accomplished pain and sorrow. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him. Talk about pain and sorrow, crucifixion, are you kidding? He endured great pain and sorrow. He endured grief on the cross. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, listen to this. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He took it all on, pain and sorrow. Verse 14 of Isaiah 52, 52, 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He didn't look like a human being in his face after they were finished beating him. The face was so swollen, hematoma probably all over his face. He didn't look human. Pain, suffering, sorrow. 
This is what our Lord endured for us. Frederick Farrar wrote a book called The Life of Christ. And in it, he talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. He said this, quote, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and the ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, fever, shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of unattended wounds, it all intensifies just up to the point where the sufferer could experience the relief of unconsciousness. Jesus never experienced unconsciousness. He took it all on himself. More than pain and suffering is the grief and the sorrow that Jesus experienced on the cross. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, church, the greatest suffering of Christ on the cross was not the physical pain, as bad as it was, as we just studied. Listen, the greatest suffering that he endured was separation from God the Father. He took that on for you and me. Of all the words that Jesus spoke from the cross, only one time did his word relate to his physical suffering. He said, I am thirsty. The rest of all the pain and suffering, he just endured. He endured it. But the greatest pain, the greatest suffering, the greatest sorrow was the grief that he felt when he was distanced from the Father. The sorrow of that separation. What mind can comprehend it? Separated from the inseparable. He's never been separated from God. He is God. Just think about this. Separated from a father of infinitely deep and lasting love, forsaken by God the Father. That is Christ's greatest suffering for our sins. No question about it. This is the focal point of the entire Bible in this passage right here. The suffering of Christ on the cross of Calvary. So Jesus, what did he accomplish on the cross? He accomplished pardon, disgrace, pain, sorrow, and grief, but he also, number four, he experienced reconciliation. He brought us back into right relationship with God the Father. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split. At the at the point of his death, it is finished. It is reconciled. The sin debt that man holds, that God holds over him, has now been satisfied through his death. And when that happened, listen, the created order of inanimate objects begins to revolt all at once at the command of the Father. It's as if all the inanimate objects begin to worship God because what has happened is creation has been reset 
for those who believe. Isn't that awesome? Verse 52, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or who were dead were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. See, the natural order of birth and life and death has now been reversed by God the Father. That's the power of our Father. He can do whatever he chooses to do. But everything he does is according to his divine sovereign plan. Verse 54, now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, we're about to see what the greatest message of the cross is. Those guys, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, people coming out of the graves, when they see the, the clouds roll in, they see this whole earth shaking, rocks are splitting. When they see all of this, all of a sudden, one of them became frightened enough to cry out and say, truly, this was the Son of God. He got it right. Truly, this was the Son of God. In the instant that Jesus said, it's finished and breathed his last, the sin debt was satisfied for all men. See, the greatest work of the cross is not just that God saved you from your sin. It's that he, through his divine plan and the obedience of Christ to that plan, he, Jesus took on the wrath of God for you. God's wrath was not poured out on you. It was poured out on Christ, his son. That, to me, is the greatest thing about the cross. Yes, I'm thankful that he, re he reconciled me, that my sins are forgiven through my faith in him, but I'm telling you, he spared me the wrath, the anger, the judgment of God. Wow. Praise God for that, amen? Man, oh man, that just blesses my heart to think about it. See, God hates sin. He had to deal with sin. If he didn't, he wouldn't be God. He'd be like us. He can't ignore it. He can't wink at it. He had to deal directly with it, and he chose to deal with it through his son in our behalf. He paid it in full. Jesus satisfied the sin debt so that we could be reconciled and receive the fullness of God's love. Oh, Jesus' path to my forgiveness, the accomplishment of the cross, a pardon. He took on disgrace. He took on pain and sorrow, and through him he provided my reconciliation to the Father. Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want to say tonight, because I never want to assume that everybody here knows the Lord. If you are a lost sinner, if you are not saved, you're not converted, you're not born again, you are a lost sinner, and your sin debt is still on you. Not because God chooses that, I believe it's because you have not responded to his love. You have not opened your heart to the work of the Spirit calling you out of darkness. See, people who are not saved... To some degree, all of them love the darkness. 
Sometimes they don't even know they're in darkness, but they are. And until God turns the light on, you cannot be saved. But tonight you're here. Is it possible that God is turning the light on? That he is wanting by his spirit to regenerate you, to save you. See, if you're saved, you no longer like the darkness. Now you desire to come out of darkness and into the light of Christ. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. I don't want to be in the darkness. I now clearly see that I'm in the dark. Thank you, Father, for providing a way out of darkness. I receive it. Thank you for it. By faith, I believe. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that I've lived in darkness, and I want out. Thank you for the work you did to take me out of darkness. Apart from Christ, we would be in the kingdom of darkness, but God came after us. He conquered our selfish will. No man's will can save them. Man's heart's deceitful above all things. Your will's never going to line up with God's will until the Holy Spirit comes into you. And that's salvation. That's salvation. The greatest work that has already happened is the cross. And the reminder of the cross for us regularly is the Lord's Supper. That was the night when Jesus met with his disciples. Again, everything in the preparation for the Passover meal was specifically laid out. The timing of it, the clarity of, the, of everything they did leading up to that meal together in the upper room was of the Father. They had the Seder meal together. They partook of the Seder meal like all the Jews in the city. And then after they finished that meal, Jesus instituted a new covenant. That is when, when he gave the first communion to his disciples, that is when the Seder meal became illegitimate in the eyes of God. I'm not saying that it's wrong to, to do a Seder meal because everything in the Seder meal points to Christ. But a lot of Jews don't see it that way. But I'm just saying, if you think that somehow that Seder meal is going to right you with God, no, no, it's through understanding the work of the cross. So what did Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you what he did. Jesus, and I, I love this loaf of bread, Morgan made these loaves for us. And... Uh, you know, last year she said, Dad, you really struggled to open that loaf. It's tough on the outside. She goes, you want me to do it differently this year? And I said, no, do it the same. Let me tell you why. What does the bread represent? <laughs> His broken body. Well, hang on, look. Look here. His broken body. His broken body. He suffered greatly for us. And then the cup represents what? A new covenant in his blood. No longer are we taking a Seder meal with glasses of wine and trying to represent what happened to the Israel in the Old Testament as they escaped Egypt and as they were following God and God gave them the Passover meal. No, no. Now... It's the work of Christ on the cross. By his shed blood, we are saved. 
don't worry, you're not going to be eating off the loaf that I've touched with my hands. Some of you, I'm just looking at some of you, and you're wondering, are we going to be eating off of that? We're not. This was, this was made just for me to rip open as I struggled to rip it open. What we're going to do is a little different tonight. I love corporate communion where the body comes together to partake together in the supper of the Lord. I love that. It's significant. It's important. It is an ordinance that we never want to, uh, you know, do less of. If anything, we do more. Tonight, I want to change it just a little bit. When the disciples took the Lord's Supper, they didn't do it all at the same time. They didn't all take a piece of the bread and then also have a cup and wait until everybody was served and then take it together. No, he passed it, and each one took it as they considered what it represented. So tonight, I want to invite those who are going to distribute the bread. They're going to come up. They're going to use gloves. They're going to have little tongs. The bread's already been pieced for us. Under the trays, you'll find a cup of, of the juice, symbol, symbolic of the blood of Christ. And then you'll go over to the men, and they'll give you a piece of bread. And uh, you come tonight when you're ready. It's not going to be some order, some chronological thing. It's come when you're ready. Have a moment of quiet reflection. Tonight we learn what Christ has done for us. But more than that, think of it what he's done for me. Christ in my place. And when you get to a point where you can see that clearly, in your mind you're thinking about Christ in my place what he's done for me, not for anybody else. Yes, I'm thankful he's done it for all of us, but make it personal, make it intimate. He, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you're ready, just come forward. Walk up, take a cup, receive a piece of bread in your palm, and then go back to your seat. Don't wait for all of us to be served. You take the cup, you take the bread when you're ready. Start with the bread. That's his body that was broken for you as I illustrated. And then take the cup that you, if you're a believer, and this is a believer's ordinance. It's not for unbelievers. If you're, if you're an unbeliever tonight and you've not received Christ as your Savior, we want you to observe it. There's nothing wrong with observing it, but don't participate. But if you're a believer, understand the new covenant that's been established in the blood of Christ. I'm no longer the same person. Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And when you're ready, you participate in the elements on your own, you and God, in your own moment, okay? And we'll give you ample time to come when you're ready. And uh, then I'll close our time after everyone's had a chance to come, who feels led of the Lord to come. After we've taken our elements in our own time, then we'll close it with prayer.
This is Good Friday. This is when we remember what Jesus has done for us, the perfect time to take the Lord's Supper. Come when you're ready. What can we say, Lord? really aren't words to describe what we feel in our hearts. Just that we are just utterly beside ourselves when we think about what you did for us. Oh, it just compels us to want to worship you to become living sacrifices, all fresh and new. We are so thankful for your work on the cross. And we, tonight, have taken time just to put you in your rightful place once again. May we leave tonight knowing that each and every day we are to deny self pick up our own cross and follow you. Surrender is the key to a victorious Christian life. It has nothing to do with worldly success. It has to do with obedience and surrender. And that's exactly what you modeled for us through your death on the cross. May we now walk in the newness of life that you have given us. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, praise the Lord. We have a good God, don't we? Amen. Wow. There is none like him. That's like Micah said, who's a God like you who pardons iniquity, who mortifies sin? Wow, what a God. Amen. All right.